One Week Season. week season fam welcome to a special edition of the ows podcast feed i am your host jm to win and i am honored excited etc to welcome today's special guest formerly of numberfire.com formerly of fanduel now of his very own late round qb.com jj zacharias and jj how are you doing I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm glad that we we can finally chat. You know, this is the first time we've been able to do a show together. I'm really excited. Yeah, we were talking a week ago when we were talking about doing this show about how much fun it is to do shows with new people who you kind of know from afar but haven't done a show with yet. So we mm-hmm. get to strike up a beautiful friendship today in front of our listeners. That's right. Uh, we'll we'll see where it goes from here. But yeah. uh, if any of you are not familiar with JJ, uh, first off, Roto Maven, Aaron, our our COO at OWS. When I told him I was doing a show with you, he was super excited because he listens to your podcast all season long. If you're not familiar with JJ, you know, one of the things that I always look for in the season long fantasy producers of content is the people who actually know what they're talking about and don't just have a cushy desk job, TV job. And I think that JJ really stands out as one of the top guys. And what I love about his podcast throughout the season is unlike anything I ever do, it's quick hitter podcast, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And so you can consume that kind of on the go every day and just be kept up to speed on what's going on in in fantasy and so on and so forth. So yeah, I think that uh, if you're not listening to that, again, like I said, uh, Rotom Maven, that's a daily listen for him. It's part of his DFS process and his season long process. And definitely something that I would check out. JJ, anything else you want to tell the people before we dive in? No, man. Yeah. I mean, the podcast can sort of get you uh, anywhere, anywhere you want within the the late round fantasy football uh, realm. Exactly. Exactly. And um, so, yeah. And if you're still, if you haven't drafted yet, we're recording this, you know, a week, a week and a day before kickoff. Uh, JJ has one of the best draft kits out there. It's another thing to to consider checking out. I remember when I used to be deep into season long and I would find like the free content out there and then be at such a disadvantage to the people who'd spent like 25 bucks or 30 bucks on on a draft kit that sets them so far ahead of everybody else. So if you've been doing best ball drafts on DraftKings, you see people making the idiotic decisions that have you scratching your head. Those are people who are not paying attention to things like JJ's draft kit. So uh, another thing to keep in mind for you. But yeah, uh, JJ, since I have you on, what I'm excited to talk about is basically some different situations that are going to be important for both season-long players and DFS players. So things that we can be looking for early in the season and players slash team situations where we have some question marks and want to sort of sort through the noise in order to figure out the meat of the topic and figure out what how these situations really play out. So the first thing I want to look at is what I'm calling ADP whiplash. And it's these guys who we've seen their average draft position drop dramatically for various reasons. So I'm going to single out three guys. They're all running backs. And then if there are any others that you think of or that come up in this conversation, we'll hit those as well. But uh, three guys I'm thinking of are David Montgomery, Miles Sanders, Antonio Gibson, 
Take your pick of those three. How are you seeing one of these situations, all of these situations, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, you know, these are like the the typical running back dead zone type running backs. You know, Miles Sanders was a little bit later than the other two earlier in the offseason in terms of ADP. Um, but, you know, Montgomery's taking a little bit of a hit. Antonio Gibson, I mean, he's all over the place now with the Brian Robinson news and such um, and, and what happened to him. But, uh, you know, I, I think that the the overarching theme with these players is and this is why the running back dead zone sort of exists in the first place. You know, it's this like round three and a half to round six area of your draft where running backs generally don't come through at a very high rate. Um, but also the opportunity cost in getting those running backs is really high because there's very, very good wide receivers that are drafted in that range every single year. Um, and so you know, the, you, you, you get what, what happens is people are drafting and, uh, you know, there's only so many bell cows, projectable bell, bell cows. Uh, entering a given fantasy season. Um, and so fa- and fantasy managers, when they get to the third, the fourth round, they panic when they don't have enough running backs and they just sort of force the issue a little bit with these. I don't want to, you know, they're, they're sort of inferior talents compared to some of the guys that go in rounds one and two. And they're really drafting these guys based off of volume alone uh, and, and projected volume. But we know that that can fluctuate quite a bit from how we feel at the beginning of the season versus what actually happens. Mike Davis being the perfect example of that last year. Um, And so I think David Montgomery is a really good example of this because uh, we're making a lot of assumptions right now, or I think drafters have been at least over the off season with David Montgomery. Uh, The assumption being that he's going to continue to see the same work that he's seen uh, over the last couple of seasons. Last season, he was second in the NFL and running back snap rate behind only Najee Harris. The year before that, he was first in the NFL and running back snap rate. And obviously that's going to correlate to a lot of uh, usage and production and fantasy points. Um, but we have this new regime. We have new coaching staff. We have new front office. They have no ties to David Montgomery. Um, and, and what I think we see when that happens is a more objective view on the talent and, and with the talent and of the talent that they have on the current roster. And if you look at that current roster, they have Khalil Herbert right behind David Montgomery. And last season as a rookie, he was really good. A really, really underrated rookie season uh, from Khalil Herbert. He had a better success rate when looking at uh, expected points versus Montgomery, uh, he was more explosive. He picked up 20 plus yards at a 3.9% rate when that was 2.2% for Montgomery. You know, Khalil Herbert had some time as the lead back in that backfield when Montgomery was out. He had two top 12 performances in fantasy and he had four double digit in, in, in four double digit carry games. And in one of those games, he rushed for 100 yards against Tampa Bay, which no other running back did last season. Um, you know, I think overall the situation in Chicago is is atrocious. Uh, you know, I think they could have one of the worst offenses in football this year, one of the worst offensive lines in the league. Obviously, the weapons are really lacking there. Um, but I think that we could walk into a situation here where this backfield is split up a lot more than people think, you know, especially home leagues and, and more casual drafts, office leagues, that sort of thing. Montgomery's still gonna go pretty high because people generally draft off of what they've seen you know, in, in recent, in recent history and over the last couple of seasons, um, I'm really worried about them splitting the backfield more than expected. And that just can't happen in an offense like this. It's not going to generate that many points and has such a bad offensive line. Yeah. There's so many things there that you hit on. First off, one of the things that I love about you is your, you have a very process oriented approach to fantasy and to your breaking down of situations and thoughts and so on and so forth, which gives us a much better sense of a situation than if you're kind of shooting from the hip, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that one of the things that is important to note here is 
the unknowns and then the risk reward. And so the unknowns are relatively great. Uh, I was certainly, you know, I was one of the first people on the Khalil Herbert bandwagon last year just because he was such a good vision running back. He was such a good one cut and go running mm-hmm. back. And it was interesting because that wasn't really the way that their offense was set up last exactly. year. That yep. is the way that their offense is expected to be set up this year. But I've always been kind of a David Montgomery truther, but again, it's been largely role based. And so when we look at the risk reward of where you take this guy, like you said, if you're in an office league, a home league, he's going to be taken higher. If you're if you're drafting best ball or if you're in a higher dollar draft, then he's probably going to be drafted lower. And so then your risk reward sort of paradigm shifts a little bit in terms of, yeah, but what if David Montgomery does end up getting 75, 80% of the snaps, which is still in his range of outcomes. But I think that one of the biggest things to think about too, and this is sort of why, for example, I haven't jumped on the Damian Pierce bandwagon at this higher ADP myself, is because I want to think about what an offense, excuse me, what an offense actually offers. So fantasy upside comes so much from touchdown production and on an offense like the bears, how many touchdowns are there actually for the taking? So we love that there are not a lot of weapons. We love that there's a concentrated distribution of touches, but how valuable do these, do these touches become? And like you said, it's not just about what you're adding to your roster. It's about what you're taking away from your roster. So Mm -hmm. if you're playing in fantasy and you've seen these, championship teams that have two or three really good running backs, you feel like you need those running backs. What you don't realize is you're probably not getting all of those in the spots where you think you're going to get them. A lot of times these, these champion running backs are, you have one or two guys who come deeper in the draft. You just end up on the right guy or you pick them up off waiver wires and end up with the right guy. And so if you're giving up a great wide receiver in this range for uncertainty at running back, then you have to think about what's the upside that you're getting with it. The the flip side of that is a guy like Miles Sanders, who to me, I think that the talent is to an extent, the talent is inarguable. Mm-hmm. He's top 10 in NFL history in yards per carry among running backs. He just doesn't play much, hasn't had an opportunity to play much. And I think that our perception of him is a little bit lower than it probably should be. I think that he was being drafted, at least in best ball, he was being drafted around pick 70. And then the news came out about him getting reps with the second team in practice. It all blew over within a day or two, but it led to this ADP drop of about 20 spots that didn't really get arrested until he was in this range with the Rashad Pennies and and Damian Harris's and these guys in the mid nineties. And there's been nothing to kind of jolt him back up in terms of ADP. So I kind of see him as a value right now. And then the Antonio Gibson situation, obviously we just, we have so many unknowns now because with Brian Robinson, it's like, he's probably leaving the hospital in like within the next week. But what does that mean? We don't really know. So I think with that one, it's just a pure risk reward guess because clearly Washington has decided that they don't want to rely on Antonio Gibson at this point. And yet they might be forced to for a little while. You have any quick thoughts on either of those spots? Yeah. So Miles Sanders, I agree with you. Like I, I, I have him in a tier above the guys that he generally gets, gets grouped with. Um, and, and part of that is and the other crazy thing with Sanders is that I actually don't think that Kenneth Gainwell is a bad selection either. Um, you know, obviously not on the same team and on the same roster. Uh, but I do think that they they both 
bring uh, some element when you're looking at range of outcomes where you could see a scenario where both of them hit. Uh, you know, the, the Eagles have one of the best offensive lines in the league, and they also have the easiest schedule in the league when looking at uh, team win totals. Uh, they're going to be more pass heavy this year. From week eight on last year, week eight was that game where they played against Detroit and they started to go really, really run heavy. They had a 39% pass rate from week eight onward. Just to give you some context, the team during that stretch that was second lowest uh, was New England at 47%. That generally just naturally regresses year over year. Like we would see some regression there. But then on top of that, they add A.J. Brown. They want to see what they have in Jalen Hurts. I think they're going to be, at least in neutral game scripts, a more pass-heavy team than what we saw last season, which is going to benefit. Uh, you know, it could end up That could end up benefiting a guy like Kenneth Gainwell a little bit because Gainwell, uh, a guy who can catch passes out of the backfield, uh, he looked pretty good in both of my, my prospect model when he was coming out and my year two model that I built, which looks at how well a player is going to do during year two and year three of their NFL careers. Gainwell uh, was the third rookie running back last year uh, since 2011 with a 10 plus percent target share and fewer than hundred carries. So he was basically a satellite back, but he hit that 10% target share threshold. The other two were Tariq Cohen and, and Naheem Hines two very, very good pass catching back. So I think that that Gainwell has an opportunity to seize that role but because of the game script setup that they have in Philadelphia and because of that offensive line and because we've seen Miles Sanders be effective in the past, I think I think Miles Sanders is fine, too. Uh, I wouldn't draft him on the same team, uh, but I do think that if you're you know, if you're if you're drafting uh, in bulk, uh, it's totally fine to get exposure to, to both of those guys. And obviously, Boston Scott is going to be thrown in there a little bit as well with Antonio Gibson. I agree with you, like the the, the fear with Gibson uh, to me, still exists in the fact that this team clearly does not really like Antonio Gibson the way that the fantasy community seems to, um, or at least has over the last year or two. Um, you know, if, if you look at, uh, you know, uh, Gibson in, in this backfield with the other two players, with Brian Robinson and JD McKissick, yes, Brian Robinson might be out of the way for X amount of time. We have no idea at this point. Um, but J.D. McKissick is a big deal, too. Last year, McKissick in games played with Antonio Gibson. Gibson, uh, they, they played 11 games together. Gibson hit a double digit percentage target share in just two of those 11 games. Without J.D. McKissick, he hit a double digit percentage target share in three of five games. That's when he really blew up down the stretch, was really effective in fantasy. So, yes, Brian Robinson might be out of the picture. And Brian, I mean, Robinson was a, a huge threat to just dethrone uh, Gibson just in and of itself because Robinson has a three down skill set. He looked really good in the preseason. But I, I, I think that McKissick being there is still a cap to Gibson's overall ceiling. Fortunately, they start the year with two really easy matchups where they, they could see positive game scripts that could benefit Gibson. But overall, I'm still very fearful because eventually, hopefully, you know, it doesn't seem like this, this, uh, the shooting was, it was insanely serious. And there's a chance that Robinson's back this year. And if he's back in hundred percent, then that's just going to torpedo Gibson even more. So, you know, I'm trying to draft guys who appreciate and value in season long, uh, guys who uh, will really hit their stride down the stretch and during those important playoff weeks. And I feel like the opposite could end up happening with Antonio Gibson. Oh, I love that about the appreciating and value because that matters so much in season long strategy. It matters so much in best ball strategy to think not just about, in fact, uh, if you guys have been listening to the OWS podcast feed, when Hilo had Chess Liam on, who won the best ball mania 
last year on Underdog, he was talking about drafting players with the thought process of who's going to have a bigger role deeper into the season, who's Mm -hmm. essentially going to appreciate in value deeper into the season. I'll also note that Washington has Curtis Samuel, who the drafting community has kind of forgotten about, but they want him to be not a Debo Samuel type player, but more of a, more of like what Curtis Samuel was that last year with the Panthers. I think he had 41 carries that year, or you know, a little over two carries a game. And so he's going to be involved coming out of the backfield as well. And then on the on the Miles Sanders thing, one thing I want to note, too, is just from a strategy standpoint, we get in this mindset of wanting to take a stand on things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we can gain a lot of value from is understanding that, as I often talk about, embracing uncertainty and using it to our advantage can benefit us quite a bit. So if you're in one league, you have to decide Miles Sanders, Kenneth Gainwell, AJ Brown, like who do I want to take? But if you're in multiple leagues, you could basically just place a bet on the Eagles offense on the Eagles offense being one of the higher scoring offenses this year. And so I'll use an example. I'm doing uh, the uh, underdog launched this Mastiff tournament, which is a $2,500 entry, uh, 72, team best ball tournament, basically. So six, 12 team leagues and max entry is two. So I have my two entries in there and on one of the entries. So this is best ball where your points are going to layer. But on one of those entries, I have Miles Sanders and Kenneth Gainwell to basically say, look, I have the Eagles backfield. I'm not necessarily Mm -hmm. having to bet on one guy, the Eagles backfield. And on that second roster, I took AJ Brown. And so you're basically able to say, Regardless of where points are coming from on the Eagles from a week to week basis, these rosters are going to benefit from the Eagles having a good season. And so same thing, if if you're drafting in 10 different fantasy leagues, you don't have to say, hey, this is my guy and I'm going to take Miles Sanders every time and I'm going to leave Kenneth Gainwell alone. You can mix and match these things and recognize that you're betting on same thing we talked about with David Montgomery and being on this bad offense. Philadelphia is going to have a good offense this year. It's going to be an improved offense this year. And they have a soft schedule. They're going to put up a lot of points. They're going to be one of the stories of the NFL season this next year. In fact, I think that their their win totals are even with the Cowboys, like they're betting Mm -hmm. favorites to win the NFC East along with the Cowboys. And so this is going to be a team that puts up a lot of points and you can get that production across different rosters of yours. And I think that's a sharp way to go. Okay, so I want to roll things over to... When I was putting together kind of our structure for this podcast, I started looking at all of these new, these same wide receiver, new situation setups. And I started making the list and I I said in my message, I said, boy, it's a long list this year. Uh, We won't get to them all, but it's like Devontae Adams goes to the Raiders. Uh, Tyreek Hill goes to the Dolphins. Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy have Russell Wilson coming in in this Nathaniel Hackett offense. Juju Smith-Schuster leaves the Steelers, leaves this short area role that he's been pigeonholed into and goes to the Chiefs. Robert Woods is being drafted, what, eighth, ninth round, and he goes to Tennessee, where currently he's going to be the alpha on that offense. Does he appreciate in value? Well, let's talk about that. Uh, A.J. Brown going to Philadelphia. Debo Samuel has Trey Lance. Uh, Hollywood Brown going to Arizona. Metcalf and Lockett losing Russ. Allen Robinson going to the Rams. So we have a couple of other things you want to get to, and I don't want to keep you too long. But why don't you go ahead and pick out just a couple of these spots that maybe stand out to you and your thoughts on these spots or how you're kind of handling these situations in general? Yeah, you know, I I think one player that I've probably had the hardest time with is this, just this off season uh, has been Tyreek Hill. Um, And I I say that because I look at what, you know, uh, Mike McDaniel did in San Francisco 
um, and what he would hypothetically bring to Miami and the concepts from San Francisco to Miami. I think like, like hypothetically, this could work really, really well with Tyreek, but not the way that I think the average fantasy manager thinks about Tyreek Hill. Uh, you know, that, that offense is really focused on getting the ball into the wide receiver's hands or the playmaker's hands and letting them generate a lot of yards after the catch. That's why they went out and they, when they drafted Brandon Ayuk, he was great at yak in college. He still is Debo, obviously probably the best yards after, after catch uh, wide receiver in football, George Kittle, same thing at tight end. There's just these yak monsters in that San Francisco offense and Tyree kill great after the catch. You know, I, I think people just see him as this deep threat, but he, like, I mean, he's had experience playing running back in his history. Um, and so, you know, the thing, then you match that with, with Tua and Tua is not a bad deep ball thrower. It's just that he doesn't frequently throw it deep, which is not unlike what we saw in San Francisco with Jimmy Garoppolo last year in particular, he, you know, his frequency and throwing at 15 plus 20 plus air yards wasn't very high. Um, but with good weapons, it can still happen. And Tua is another, another quarterback who, you know, like, Tua didn't work well with Devontae Parker because Devontae Parker, you know, doesn't get that separation and Tua throws to the open guy. Like he's, he's not like a Ryan Fitzpatrick type. And what do they have? They have two guys that separate really well in both Jalen Waddle and Tyreek Hill. So I think when you, when you bring it all together from a real football standpoint with Tyreek, I think the fit is definitely there uh, from a fantasy perspective. It's just really hard to sort of look at who's going to see the higher target share between these two guys with what, I mean, Waddle's banged up a little bit more now. So it's a little bit easier to draft Tyreek in that second round. Um, but there's just a lot more up in the air, just in terms of like pass rate on this team and uh, how they'll, they'll, they'll overall operate. But, but the way that I'm, I'm seeing it though, is that I think Tyreek is going to actually be more of a high catch guy than the deep threat guy that we saw, uh, you know, and the, the efficiency guy that we saw uh, in Kansas city, just given the way that this offense operates. So he's someone who I'm fine with at ADP. I just think that his fit is probably the most interesting and intriguing just because of the way that uh, the masses view him and, and this fit and versus the way that I sort of see it and, and, you know, just broke it down. So he's one guy. And then I'll, I'll talk about uh, Juju as well. Uh, you know, you mentioned it, like he had this really low a dot role in Pittsburgh where, you know, this offense, the offensive line was terrible. Ben Roethlisberger's time to throw was like less than a sec. I mean, he just got rid of the ball so quickly to mask that offensive line and to not get sacked himself. He was a statue in the back uh, uh, under center whenever he did drop back to pass. Um, and so that that resulted in, you know, Deontay Johnson had a really low A dot. But Juju Smith-Schuster in his last full season, he had a six yard A dot. And everyone says then, oh, he's really efficient. He's been dropping in efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's really, really difficult to be efficient with a six yard A dot. The only wide receivers that are, truly efficient with that low of an A dot are basically like a Percy Harvin or a Debo Samuel type. Um, when you look at his peripherals a little bit deeper, Juju's, his deep ball numbers, he, they basically got cut in half in terms of how often he was seeing the ball down the field uh, over his final couple seasons in Pittsburgh. But, you know, his catch rate was still similar. Uh, his efficiency on deep balls was still pretty similar. I don't think that he's completely dead. I, I don't think that a, you know, he's still very, very young, despite the fact that he's, he's already entering his sixth NFL season. Um, you know, I, I think that Juju could really thrive in this offense and it's really, really easy. Not that I, not that anyone should predict this because it would be silly to, but I do think that if there's someone who lines up with the Cooper cup profile from last year, it's Juju Smith Schuster. You have a slot guy who played the majority of his snaps from the slot during his four, first four or five seasons in the NFL quarterback upgrade, 
someone who gave us wide receiver two seasons historically. Um, so, you know, it's a, a good player for all intents and purposes who's getting this quarterback upgrade. And for in Juju's case, there's really not a lot of competition around him or at least proven competition outside of tra- uh, Travis Kelsey. So I actually think that Juju right now is a pretty good value in drafts, at least, you know, in sharper drafts, he goes a little bit higher, but you know, in a lot of drafts that, that the average fantasy manager is drafting in, uh, I think that he's a really good bet this year. Yeah. I think that the Juju becomes more and more difficult if we get into like late third, uh, early fourth round and, or, or even I guess late fourth, uh, where he's like being picked to like pick 45, 46. And I still like him there, but I think that if you're in the average draft where people are concerned about embracing the uncertainty, he becomes such a value. Mm -hmm. There's so many unknowns with Juju because he had that great, stretch early in his career and then antonio brown was like basically antonio brown was like yeah but what's juju gonna do without me taking away attention from him and antonio brown left and we did see that juju wasn't able to produce as an alpha but also that was already we had ben roethlisberger on the decline and then they switched him over i mean if you looked at his route trees like on next gen next gen's charts it was like the most ridiculous you know three yards downfield five yards downfield six yards downfield like you said an eight out of six which in this in the scope of wide receivers is just ridiculously low and and he still put up, you know, I think it was 185 half PPR points two seasons ago in that offense with that role. And so I think that one of the things that we need to recognize is there's so little we know about Juju. He's still, I think he's 25 years old. <laughs> like you said, even though he's going into his sixth year in the league, he's so young. And I think that when we talk, talk about, okay, well, can he be an alpha receiver? Well, you don't really have to be an alpha receiver in a in an Andy Reid designed Yep. Patrick Mahomes offense. Andy Reid's going to figure out ways to get him into space. He's going to use him all over the field. And I think that Juju is just a real value there. I think also, I love what you said about that Dolphins offense, because one of the things I always try to look at is the separation between what we all think of as a coach's system and what might have been a coach building around their particular players, mm-hmm. which gives us some unknowns. But in this particular situation, like you said, we have a 49ers team that very much went out of their way to draft yards after catch guys and then develop their offense around those yards after catch guys. And then Mike McDaniel goes to the Dolphins and sure, like Jalen Waddle and Tyree Kill aren't Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk and George Kittle, but they have very similar yards after catch upside in, mm-hmm. in that he'll see that he can kind of put these guys in these positions. But I agree with you. I think that the it's hard to see Tyree Kill producing a season that has people clamoring for him in the middle or end of the first round next year. Right, right. I think that that's passed just because that's hard to do without Patrick Mahomes as your quarterback. And we can even say the same thing for Devontae Adams, although I think that Devontae Adams has a better shot at remaining in that first round range next year, just because the Raiders are going to, you know, if, if you don't follow all the numbers that closely, you might not realize how little the Packers throw the ball, how slow the Packers pace of play is. So I think that just the bumped up volume in, in passing is going to offset the efficiency enough that Devontae can still end up there. But, uh, but yeah, I think that Tyreek is kind of being drafted in the right spot. He's not a guy that I'm afraid to miss out on. It's not mm-hmm. like I'm passing. And I'm thinking, man, what if he puts up a 300 point season? The one guy I am kind of thinking that, and we'll, we'll talk about this guy and then move on from this topic, but is Debo Samuel, where you can get him at the end of the second round. He put up a 300 point half PPR season last year. Obviously, they're going to 
well, I was going to say, obviously, they're going to be less pass pass dominant. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be hard to throw the ball less often than the 49ers did last year, to be honest. Right. And so it's not like passing volume is going to go down that much. We know that Trey Lance has these accuracy issues that pop up from time to time. It was all throughout camp. We saw it when he was starting last year, but the 49ers are still going to try to get Debo the ball in space, right? The 49ers are still going to try to give Trey Lance layup throws to Debo. It's not like Debo is having these huge games from, uh, if you look at Debo's yak per reception, it's 10 plus yards each season. And it's like every year over the last two years, he's been like five or six or seven yards above his expected yak per reception because the 49ers put him in space. And then he's so good with the ball in his hands. I kind of feel like he has a chance to exceed his draft-based expectations this year. And I don't see a ton of downside. I'm curious your thoughts on Debo because I've been kind of back and forth on that all summer. Yeah, I, I don't think that you're going to necessarily walk away from your draft and be upset that you have Debo Samuel because he's a, he's a monster. Um, I, I, I th- my, my hesitation with Debo is probably twofold. It would be uh, just natural regression. You know, obviously he's, you know, not, not only is he not going to score as many rushing touchdowns as he did last year, but he wasn't seeing rushing work where we want players to see rushing work, AKA closer to the goal line. You know, they were still swapping out their traditional running backs in that uh, environment uh, versus going with Debo. And the other thing that I, I think that will, will basically determine whether or not Debo really lives up to expectation is how much are the coaches going to influence Trey Lance's tendencies? Uh, because I do think that Lance has just naturally, obviously has, has a better arm than Jimmy Garoppolo does. And if he does, take more chances down the field, that's going to benefit, benefit a player like Brandon Ayuk, who's going to have, who generally, you know, last year, I think he had an A dot of like one and a half or two yards more than Debo did. Um, Not to say that Debo can't get down the field, but it obviously just meshes a little bit better with Ayuk. Um, And so that would be my fear uh, is more so that, uh, and you know, obviously if the coaches influence this uh, and and force feed Debo, because in, in roles like the role that Debo has, you can do that. You know, I always talk on my podcast about how, uh, volume is earned at wide receiver a little bit more than it is at running back. Not to say that it's not at running back. You hope that talent wins out at the position, but it's a coaching decision at the end of the day, right? I mean, like we could love this running back. We could we could love Antonio Gibson, but if Ron Rivera is sitting there saying, uh, I'm not going to give Antonio Gibson uh, a bell cow workload. Well, okay, that's just the way that it's going to be. Uh, but at wide receiver, you got to get open in order to see a target. And if you're open enough, your quarterback's going to find you. But these are manufactured touches. Uh, it can be manufactured for a player like Debo Samuel. And so if the if the coaches want to force that, then Debo can absolutely live, live up to expectation. I'm with you. I'm sort of in the middle. I probably lean more not drafting Debo at his ADP, but his ADP didn't really rise nearly as much as I expected it to when he officially was sticking around because I think a lot of people uh, expected, you know, at the start of the offseason, you know, with this holdout and such, they and the trade demands, they expected Debo to not take or not want to take on this like rushing role that he had last year to have a longer career, et cetera, et cetera. And then he re-signs with San Francisco and and for, you know, everything we hear is that, you know, he's still going to play that role to some degree. I expect his ADP to really rise more. And it, it really hasn't since, since that news dropped. So um, like I can understand getting him for sure uh, as a result of that. Yeah. The two things that you brought up that I really like is one touchdown regression. I think he had, this is off the top of my head, so I might be wrong, but I think he had eight rushing touchdowns last yeah, year yeah, he did. It was and, crazy. and 14 receiving touchdowns, something like that. But yeah, it's, it's the, that's going to make, I might have the receiving touchdown numbers wrong, but yeah, that, that's going to take a step back. And if you take away 
five rushing touchdowns, that's 30 points right there. And then you take away some of the points for the, you know, the drop down in passing efficiency from Trey Lance, from Jimmy Garoppolo to Trey Lance. And then also, like you said, not only does Trey Lance mesh well with Ayuk, but all of the reports have been that Trey Lance loves Brandon Ayuk. That's his favorite target throughout camp. And so I think that that also can hurt it. And then on the flip side, you have the, if you kind of, Look at the roots of how ADP has been established throughout the summer. Debo was being drafted lower than he would have been being drafted because of the uncertainty around his contract. And then, like you said, when he officially signed, the ADP rose, but not as much as you might have expected. So there is kind of there's pulls on both sides where you can say, yeah, like maybe not a priority, but he's a guy that you're going to be perfectly fine with coming out of the draft because it's not like unless he gets hurt. And we always assume in my mind, we always assume health as soon as we draft a guy unless he gets hurt, he's not going to disappoint you, but he's going to have a hard time really like exceeding expectations in that range. Uh, Okay. So I want to touch on two other things. I'm kind of hit these quickly. So the first one is we have the, obviously we have the quarterbacks who get drafted in the fourth round, the fifth round. We have the guys who kind of get drafted in the seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th rounds. And I think that by and large, you have some really good options waiting on quarterback and getting guys who are available kind of at the back end of the QB one tier, which would be the Matthew Stafford's, the Dak Prescott's, the Derek Carr's, the Kirk Cousins. I would honestly be very happy starting any of my teams with those quarterbacks, but we're also always looking for deeper into the draft, right? We we can say that drafts are not one in the top half of the draft, but drafts are one in the back half of the draft where you're really trying to find these values that could end up being something special. So Back half of the draft, who are some of the quarterbacks we will ask uh, at late round QB? Who are some of the uh, later round quarterbacks that you have your eyes on this season? Yeah, look, I mean, we just even though it's frustrating and even though people hate it, uh, rushing matters at the quarterback position in fantasy football, period. Uh, We we know that that it does. And every time, you know, this year when I was doing projections, um, you know, back in, in April or so when I when I did my initial ones. Um, I built them out and I, I looked at the quarterback rankings and, and the way they were projected. And Daniel Jones was like the QB 17 or 18 in my projections. And I had to do a double take. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Why is this happening? Um, but it's really, it's, it comes down to the rushing component, right? Uh, Daniel Jones last year had three fewer rushing yards per game than Kyler Murray did. Um, and, and what happened was he ended up, uh, averaging the same number of fantasy points per game as Derek Carr despite having 10 passing touchdowns in 11 games. I mean, it was a complete disaster with Jason Garrett, as we know in that offense. Um, but but Daniel Jones is, is pretty intriguing just because we've seen him escape the pocket. We've seen him. He's not an athletic quarterback. It's, 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 it's not unlike, though, and it's interesting that Brian Dable's there. It's not unlike a Josh Allen situation. And no, I'm not sitting here uh, saying that Daniel Jones is going to have the greatest leap that we've ever seen a quarterback have in NFL history like Josh Allen had. Uh, But what I am saying is if Brian Dable allows Daniel Jones to sort of throw his body around, like we've seen with Josh Allen in Buffalo. And like we saw Brian Dable coaching Josh Allen to do in Buffalo. uh, I I think that there's some upside there. They have a better offensive line. The weapons are healthy. I'm a, I'm a big Wandell Robinson guy. He's going to be able to play in the slot. You have uh, Kadarius Tony, who's seemingly healthy now, which is great. Uh, Really under, you know, really high upside wide out. Hopefully Kenny Galladay can do something, but Sterling Shepard's coming back and he seems to be healthier than expected. And then Saquon Barkley's back. I mean, the weapons are there. The play it's, it's, it's setting up well for Daniel Jones overall with this Brian Dable offense. So if there's a, 
late round quarterback that, you know, you don't care about downside. You're strictly looking for upside. I do think that Daniel Jones, as hard as it is to say that out loud, I do think that Daniel Jones might be the dude. Yeah. And I, and I think too, one of the things we see is I was talking to my dad about this a day or two ago, the Kyle Shanahan offense, like at this point, Shanahan's been with the 49ers long enough that people are like, well, this is what a Kyle Shanahan offense looks like. But if we go back over the years, he's had variations of this offense, right? Now we say, oh, the 49ers are a run heavy team. Well, the 49ers are a run heavy team because they have such a good defense. The Kyle Shanahan offense has been pass heavy. It's been run heavy. It's had similar concepts throughout, but it's been built around the strengths of the players. And I think that one of the things, you know, we can pigeonhole ourselves into saying, well, this Brian Dable offense that we've seen with the Bills, but let's keep in mind that he was with the Patriots for a while. He was with Nick Saban for a while. He was under Andy Reid for a year or two. Brian Dable's been all over the place. He's been in a lot of different systems. And I think that one of the things that we'll probably see here, you mentioned Wondell Robinson, I'm a big Wondell Robinson guy as well, is okay, what are the weapons on this Giants team? Kadarius Toney, Wondell Robinson, Saquon Barkley, these are not guys that you're necessarily saying, hey, get deep downfield and and beat this man so much as, oh, maybe Brian Dable can scheme up some concepts to get these guys in space with the ball in their hands and with space to run. And so I think that we could get some, some just layup points from Daniel Jones in addition to his rushing upside. And yeah, Daniel Jones is, is I think he's kind of been, I've had a hard time coming around on it, but among the OWS team, he's a guy that they've all been hammering in their best ball drafts. I think I have maybe one Daniel Jones roster out of like 170, which <laughs> I'm now regretting, but, but yeah, I think that this is the guy who, especially, you know, early season DFS. And I think an ideal, one of the things that uh, I did a show with Pat Mayo a week or two ago, and he was saying that like, basically right now in the, in the greater DFS industry, it's like week one is going to be Daniel Jones week and it's going to be high ownership. So what you ideally hope for is a week where Daniel Jones is highly owned in DFS bombs, and then nobody wants him the next week. And then you can hop on board. Same thing. If you don't get him in your draft, somebody else takes Daniel Jones, they drop him after he bombs, or they're willing to trade him, you know, for pennies on the dollar. And it's a guy who, especially as we get deeper into the season, guys who appreciate value throughout the season, this is a guy who, as he gets more comfortable in his offense, we could see him more consistently. We know he's going to have some spiked games, but more importantly for season long, like more consistently having games that you could actually use. And I think that Daniel Jones, you could almost say, I hate to say this, but you could almost say it's like a priority pick uh, as your backup quarterback deeper in the draft, just because the upside that you can get there compared to other spots is so much greater. And you're not giving up that much at other spots. You're taking a speculative wide receiver or running back at that point in the draft. So why not take a speculative backup quarterback who could actually end up providing some, some really nice spiked weeks. Uh, Okay. So last thing I want to ask you about is who are, let's just say two or three of the guys who are sort of your darlings this year, guys that you keep finding yourself gravitating toward picking in drafts, guys that you just really like this year for one reason or another. Yeah. Yeah. I can go with three. Um, one of them, uh, is, is a player that I definitely have not been on from a, a season long perspective, uh, historically since he entered the league, but I, I apparently this year I'm a Tony Pollard guy. Um, and I don't mean that like, I, I, I I'm actually someone who believes that Zeke is fine where he gets drafted. Um, but this is more of a Tony Pollard to me is being drafted around where he, his projection is. Um, but really players like him, even an AJ Dillon to some degree 
they should be drafted. Uh, they should get a bump in ADP based on the contingent upside of what, you know, if something were to happen to Zeke, if something were to happen to Aaron Jones, uh, then, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they would be, you know, if Aaron Jones wasn't in the picture, AJ Dillon would be probably a first round pick in fantasy. And uh, if Zeke wasn't in the picture, then Tony Pollard uh, would be a second round pick in fantasy. Um, and so I'm, I'm intrigued by that, but there's also uh, a lot of historical ADP trends that really uh, make Tony Pollard intriguing this year. Um, the, the best comp backfield that I think I can come up with, with Zeke to Tony Pollard and where they're being drafted ADP wise is the year that Melvin Gordon held out for the first four games of the season. And Austin Eckler had his big breakout year, really similar ADPs and Melvin Gordon still exceeded ADP expectation. Uh, but at the same time, Austin Eckler was the one who exceeded ADP expectation at a better rate. Um, and I think we could see that with Tony Pollard. He's a pass catcher. That's one of the things you should be looking for in breakout running backs, players who really emerge out of those middle and late rounds. Um, so I'm I'm intrigued by Pollard because, again, I think the overarching reason is because uh, his projection is basically where his ADP is for me. You know, maybe his ADP is slightly higher, but it should be higher than that even, uh, just given the fact that that if, if Zeke goes down, then, then Pollard has a lot of upside. Uh, I'm going to also say Elijah Moore. I, I love Elijah Moore. I have a prospect model. He was a 95th percentile prospect coming out in that model, which is a really good threshold for a wide receiver to hit. Uh, my year two model, which looks at year two and year three and how these guys are going to perform. He was a 96th percentile guy after what he did last year. You know, he averaged 17.7 PPR points per game over his final seven with makeshift quarterbacks. Um, you know, I know that that I, I think a lot of the reason why he's not going higher is because of Garrett Wilson, but Garrett Wilson's not getting the the, the best buzz right now playing behind at times or rotating with a guy like Braxton Berrios. I just think Elijah Moore is a stud uh, second year wide receivers out of the middle rounds of fantasy drafts hit at an obscene rate. I mean, that that is the demographic that you want to target is these second year wideouts. Um, so I love Elijah Moore. And then the last guy, I'm going to go with someone who's slipping a little bit just because he's been injured and, and not a lot of people are uh, as into him as a result, but I'm still intrigued by Drake London. Uh, again, I really like getting these, these players who appreciate and value, uh, later on in the season. And I did studies on rookie wide receivers and season long and why, and, and how well they exceed ADP expectation. And with rookie wide receivers drafted in the top 100, uh, you know, we're talking about like the best of the best. When I say that, you know, we're talking like Mike Evans back in the day and Amari Cooper, these guys who were drafted in like the top 10 of the real NFL draft. They then go in the top 100 in redraft leagues. Those players exceed ADP expectation. And by the way, when I say uh, exceed ADP expectation, I'm just talking about a trend line of uh, basically plotting uh, points per game versus average draft position and seeing what we would expect a player to score based on his ADP. And rookie wide receivers drafted in the top 100 exceed ADP expectation at a 73% clip historically since 2011. Uh, the average obviously being 50%. But the, the interesting thing is, we often see wide receivers and running backs too, but they perform much, much better from a points per game standpoint during the second half of the season. So if you were to only look at the second half numbers for these rookie wide receivers, that 73% number should have been, gets closer to 80%. Uh, so you're getting these players who really, really become league winners down the stretch. We see it every year with rookie wideouts. Um, and so I think that that not only can London just be effective right away, uh, but you know, on a team with a with not a lot of weapons around him, he's an alpha himself or potential alpha, uh, negative game scripts, all of that. But down the stretch, as he gets acclimated to the league, I think that he could dominate. I love the Pollard take about being drafted at ADP and then what his upside is if Zeke gets hurt, because a lot of times we think about 
waiting a couple more rounds and taking a guy like Alexander Madison, because we know that he's a league winner if Dalvin Cook goes down, but he's useless if Dalvin Cook doesn't go down. And so to find, you know, go a couple rounds earlier and you get a guy like Tony Pollard, who, as you said, if Zeke goes down, he's a league winner or AJ Dillon, you get to go a little bit higher than that, but he's a league winner. But even if that guy doesn't go down, you're still getting good value from this player, from this spot. I really like that. And then the Elijah Moore and Drake London, I think that we get so scared of wide receivers on teams with bad quarterbacks, Yeah, but they're still going to be, you know, and and then, and then you flip that around and people are still taking Deontay Johnson where they're taking him. Right. Exactly. They're still going to be, these teams are still going to be passing both of these teams, Atlanta and the jets have bad defenses. So they're going to be in negative game scripts where they're going to be forced to pass. Furthermore, these negative game scripts, as you get deeper into the game, often lead to the defense playing back a little bit and giving up some of these underneath looks. And so uh, I really like both of those as well i actually have i was playing around with some week one dfs building blocks like two three player stacks and i was messing around the other night with a Mariota, pitts and drake london stack one because it's it's so cheap and nobody's going to have it and we're always looking for concentrated distribution of touches we know that volume Mm -hmm. is so important and we know for a fact that on atlanta most of the targets are going to go to these two guys. And so if you have a situation like that, where you just know where the targets are going, the chances of accumulating so many more points that people are expecting is so much higher. And so I think with a guy like Drake London, you're eliminating a lot of the guesswork because the role is defined and we know that he's going to see a large target share. So then it's just down to the effectiveness of those targets. And so everybody wants to try to over predict how Mariota will look or what's going to happen with their quarterback situation or how things will flow throughout the season there. But realistically, what we know is that the targets are going to be there. And, and as you said, as you get deeper into the season, these guys are going to appreciate in value. Um, that is everything, man. This was, uh, this was fun. That was like 45 minutes, but it felt like about 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, anything else you want to say before we get out of here? No, no. I mean, I, you know, those are, those are some of my guys, you know, if, uh, my, uh, my, my late round quarterback this year in a normal home league is Trey Lance. Very easy go to, you know, he's not, not really a late rounder in, in sharper leagues, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's really it for me. Man, I appreciate you coming on. So much fun to do this. We'll have to do this again sometime. Again, listeners, uh, check out lateroundqb.com. Check out JJ on Twitter at lateroundqb. Check him out on your favorite podcast feed, lateroundqb. And like I said, listen to him throughout the season. Awesome, awesome 5, 10, 15-minute quick hitters daily podcast to kind of keep you up to speed on everything. Super easy to fit into your schedule. Super valuable. With that, we will get out of here. I will see you on OWS over the next week, over the next couple weeks, over the next few months. And I will see you at the top of the leaderboards soon. 